today on Ag News Daily. One of the biggest things that we talked about from the MCBA perspective on what we need to see out of a traceability program is that it needs to move at the speed of commerce. February 23rd, Thursday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Getting a little later start than normal, but here to bring you the latest headlines from today. Right, Delaney? Yeah, and I'm glad we waited a little bit later today, actually, Tanner, because there are some big headlines that we would not have gotten otherwise. Yeah. Why don't you start us off? Well, I think the biggest headline I've seen so far today, well, really there's two, but definitely one shaking up the beef industry today. Brazil has confirmed a case of mad cow disease and officially China has halted all beef exports as of Thursday afternoon. The case of mad cow was confirmed in the northern state of Para, the country's agriculture and livestock ministry said on Wednesday. And following that news, of course, China quickly took measures to suspend Brazilian beef imports, which is a huge blow to Brazilian farmers as China is their main destination for Brazilian beef. The case uh, was not confirmed yet as to where it came. Oh, actually it was. The sick animal was on a property with 160 head of cattle in the southeast part of the state. The site has been inspected and apparently no other cases have been reported as of yet. But this is definitely a, a major deal here. I don't know what the measures will be to resume those exports, but I think it's going to be halted for quite some time, Tanner. Yeah, if history tells us it will certainly be for quite some time. I did find it interesting in most of these reports, it is identified as a nine-year-old male cow. Uh, most would, those familiar with agriculture would state that's more than likely a bull if it has lived to be nine years old and not a steer. Therefore, not just a male cow. So quite an interesting piece of news that we're going to have to keep an eye on. Little anecdotal, anecdotal uh, notes coming out of the Federal Reserve. Uh, one of the top analysts as part of the Fed committee, James Bulliard, is coming out stating today that we may have to fight inflation a little bit harder than expected. Of course, we had the U.S. jobs report come out showing employment at its lowest level in a long time. Of course, inflation was still above 6%, as we've reported on, to where he is stating the Fed may have to hike rates at a more drastic pace to get to disinflation. They've hiked rates 13 times uh, so far, and there are more scheduled, but they could be larger now. He's stating here that they hope that they get to disinflation by the end of 2023. But right now, with economic data coming in hotter than we had thought, in an interview with CNBC, he said the Fed's benchmark of interest rates will need to move up north of 5% and closer to 6% in order to get in front of it. So even though he expressed confidence in the Fed's abilities to defeat inflation, he also argued that this could potentially lead us into an economic repeat such as the late 1970s. If we continue to see year-over-year -year inflation like this, we could see levels raised to nearly 12% if the Fed does not get out in front of it. So Delaney, that's not good news. It sounds like coming from within the Fed's walls that we may see a larger rate hike in the next meeting. 
Well, Tanner, we're also going to see potentially larger increases here for corn and soy acres. The USDA's Ag Outlook Forum is going on this week in Arlington, Virginia, and U.S. farmers are forecast to plant 91 million acres of corn up 2.4 million acres from last year and produce a record 15 billion bushel crop. As far as yields go, USDA pegged the 2023 corn yield at a 181.5 on the soybean side of the balance sheet, Tanner. We're going to, they're expecting, I should say, to see unchanged acreage at 87.5 million acres with two and a half bushels per acre forecast increase here and are pegging the yield to come in at a national average of 52 bushels per acre. That would boost production 5% compared to years prior. And that's assuming they said normal growing season weather. So still obviously a lot in store there for the growing season since we haven't even started that yet. And then finally, U.S. wheat production. They're projecting wheat acres to increase substantially here, about 14% for 2023, 2024, and going to see about 1.887 billion bushels on both higher acreage and yield. Total wheat planted acres are forecasted at 49.5 million acres, up nearly 4 million acres compared to last year, Tanner, and the highest since 2016. I think largely that is probably due to the fact that we are seeing less wheat planted elsewhere in the world, specifically Ukraine. And they're saying exports are likely going to rise for both corn and wheat, given what we know today about the situation in Ukraine. Yeah. And the other not so great news coming out of that prediction is the average prices that they're predicting for those bushels. Mm-hmm. Corn is expected to drop a dollar ten on the average farm gate price to five dollars and sixty cents, while soybeans are projected to drop down a dollar forty to twelve ninety. So, uh, obviously, with more yield would come more supply, therefore driving prices down. So we'll see how close their predictions come into play. GM is going to idle their Indiana truck plant for two weeks as they see demand plateauing. So they had seen record high profitability coming off their pickup lines over the last three years. They've been struggling to keep pace with demand amid parts shortages. I did have a couple of uh, local connections here that had purchased a GM vehicle. Finally got notice that the chips for heated steering wheel and heated seats are in and can now be uh, installed. You know, as vehicles were waiting on those pieces. But now that supply chains are caught up, General Motors said today that they are going to halt production from March 27th for the next or for the next two weeks, uh, including uh, and leading up to potentially as long as March 27th. They are starting to see inventory outweigh demand and are seeing their supply chain snags easing. So even though this truck line is extremely profitable, they are going to continue to monitor demand. They're stating that demand remained strong in their press conference this morning. However, the stock immediately dropped 3%. GM said in a statement that uh, the past month demand restrained remained fairly consistent. And that is leading to an increase in inventory as production has been ramped up. So we'll see and keep an eye on that if other major truck manufacturers begin to do the same. But this is the first notice post-COVID of a automobile plant shutting down due to supply. Well, Tanner, 
Speaking of shutting down and declining, China is still worried about continued shutdowns due to COVID and their ongoing risk there. But shots have been yet again fired. Uh, China has very publicly stated that they are angered by the Biden administration's recent decision to increase the number of U.S. troops deployed in Taiwan. That was reported today by The Wall Street Journal. The United States expects to deploy about 200 additional troops, so not a huge bump there to Taiwan in the coming months. But that's up pretty significantly compared to a year ago. And we are expanding or continuing to see expansion of training programs to also help Taiwanese soldiers and citizens defend themselves. China is also worried about their declining population and have been ramping up their efforts to turn things around before it undermines its stated goal of being the world's top economic and military power. As far as, uh, you know, their one child policy goes, obviously that hasn't been in effect for a while, but that policy has largely been ingrained so far in their culture and has had an adverse effect as now they are starting to see young people getting married, have less children and therefore have less people to support their economy as well as their military efforts. And it's starting to play out now as we see China and the U.S. continuing to clash here, Tanner. Yeah, China's in the news here locally in Iowa as well. It'll be interesting to monitor uh, the entire process here as they seem to make about one out of every five headlines today. But Governor, former Governor Branstad and former U.S. Ambassador to China, Terry Branstad, is stating that the Iowa legislature needs to be careful when they're considering bills that might restrict investment by Chinese and Iowa governmental entities. He's stating here that there needs to be a balance between security and economic opportunity. The Iowa House and Iowa Senate are moving uh, forward a bill that would continue that would contain a ban for various forms of investment from the state of the People's Republic of China. Examples would be uh, restricting their ownership of real property or investment in uh, investment of public and state board of regent funds. Companies that are controlled or will be controlled by Chinese military or government would have a ban. Obviously, Iowa and China have had a long connection due to Governor, former Governor Branstad. He stated here one thing he did while traveling as governor was not only to market the products of the state of Iowa, but also encourage foreign investment. He thinks there's a fine line that needs to be tread to try and protect our interest here locally, but not so restrictive as to prevent economic development and opportunities that lead to great jobs within the state of Iowa. Of course, President Trump had appointed Branstead the ambassador of China. He served in that role for three years. He is now president of the World Food Prize, so still keeps his global and world knowledge as far as economics goes at the forefront. He stated here, one of the focuses we have on farmland is to safeguard it. But on to other things is where we may need to be concerned about investment levels and jeopardizing national security. The fact that the federal government just put six more Chinese companies on their list demonstrates that we may not to work, maybe not have to work as hard here within the state of Iowa. So Delaney uh, Branstead being very vocal around what the Irish legislator is looking to pass and prepare currently as far as it goes for foreign investment within our state. 
Yeah. And I saw that piece of news as well. It's interesting because we've seen a lot of other states try to pull together legislation such as this. But Branstead obviously has a bit different picture compared to other states, given his relationship with China, Tanner. That's correct. But I'm out of headlines today. If you've got anything left or should we jump into markets? I have just one other quick headline here, and that's related to Indigo Ag's carbon sequestration program. They announced today that they have completed their second carbon crop consisting of more than 110,000 agricultural carbon credits issued by Climate Action Reserve. This second crop of carbon credits was produced by U.S. farmers enrolled in their Carbon by Indigo program and the second crop of the year. Indigo's first carbon crop was issued in June of 2020 and was just at 20,000 credits at the time. So they have, what is that? Five times, almost six times their uh, amount of carbon credits enrolled. And that's really the big question mark, right? Is has been so long is what are farmers actually getting paid? But this program's economic and agronomic incentives for farmers for the two carbon crops that we've seen so far, we're paid about $30 a credit Tanner here in 2023. So definitely starting to see some actual numbers come to the table as far as carbon credits are concerned. Yeah, that was good news for those that are participating, potentially getting a higher reward than what they had anticipated. But still, it sounds like a long ways to go to get the program fully developed. Absolutely. I would agree with that uh, synopsis there, Tanner. But as we look at the markets today, they are not doing so well. We've seen soybeans now give up pretty much all of the gains they had made early on in the week as we're trading about eight cents lower here in the November new crop contract here at the midday at 1387 and a half new crop corn down about four and a quarter cent at 587 and three quarters and hard red winter wheat down 10 and a quarter cent at 865 and three quarters, probably likely due to trading some of the news here out of the USDA ag outlooks forum on increased acres for corn and wheat specifically there. As we take a look at the livestock markets today, seeing some mixed trade in the proteins. April live cattle up 40 cents at a buck 65.47. April feeders up a dollar 90 at a buck 93.65. And April lean hogs down dollar here at the midday at 85.55. Tanner, without further ado, let's kick it over to a conversation with NCBA's Senior Director of Government Affairs to talk electronic tagging for the beef industry. Folks, a few weeks ago, we touched on this headline talking about the new electronic ear tag implementation that we have seen put forth now in legislation. We're going to be chatting about that today with Tanner Beamer, the NCBA Senior Director of Government Affairs. Tanner, I think a good place to start with this discussion would just be to understand some of the background for our listeners of why this new legislation has been brought back to the forefront. Certainly. So, you know, this this is actually a, a rulemaking that's coming out of the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service over at USDA. And this is really a continuation of something that they've been working on for for several years now. If you go back to uh, around 2018, somewhere thereabouts, uh, the agency actually tried to proceed with a, a guidance document that would have required that official identification for cattle moving interstate uh, the only type of official identification that APHIS would, obsess, would accept 
uh, was electronic identification with RFID tags. Uh, and so obviously uh, that did not end up taking effect. Uh, there were some completely unrelated Supreme Court decisions that really change the ways that federal agencies are allowed to interpret their own regulation. So as a result of that, uh, the Trump administration decided to pursue this change through the formal rulemaking process, which is a little bit more arduous, requires more opportunity for public feedback, uh, which is something that NCBA was very supportive of. However, that happened at the tail end of the Trump administration. Uh, the Biden administration, as most new presidents do, put a pause on that uh, when they took over in 2021. And we uh, had heard that they were going to reevaluate and take a look at it. And so they put forward this rule uh, last month. And essentially, the proposed rule is very similar to, to the previous version. Uh, it does still require electronic identification for all cattle 18 months of age or older moving interstate. Uh, the big difference, though, is that it is technology neutral. Uh, and so it does not specify RFID, so we're not having discussions necessarily about high frequency versus low frequency. Uh, and that is to accommodate for future technology that we might not have in tagging systems yet. Uh, things that might utilize Bluetooth technology or even down the road blockchain technology or, or other things that we haven't even thought of uh, just yet. So Tanner, from the NCBA's perspective, where do you guys stand on this issue? So I'm glad you asked. So that we get this question a lot, and especially following our convention where we made uh, an announcement of some goals that the industry is setting for itself to achieve uh, animal disease traceability in a robust fashion. So I like to kind of describe it as, as two separate parallel train tracks, right? You got USDA driving the engine on one track, and on the completely separate track moving in the same direction is NCBA and the industry driving uh, its own track. So over on the USDA front, obviously you've got this proposed rule. Uh, this is this is in order to have a robust animal disease traceability program. Now, obviously there's other things that you can do with traceability from a marketing perspective, but we're just focused on the traceability component for disease purposes. And so on the NCBA side of the equation, if we hop over to that track for a second, you know, we are very supportive of an animal disease traceability program. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, the, the benefits are, are innumerable and there are some, some questions that we need to get answered, but that's one of the reasons why we thought that industry should be in the driver's seat for a good chunk of this. So over on the NCBA side of the equation, you know, we put together a, a working group last year of cattle producers from across the country to look at animal disease traceability, the importance of this issue, and really kind of come up with where we want to see the industry going. And I think uh, the, the results of that were very telling. We announced those at our convention a couple of weeks ago in New Orleans, and uh, the goals that we unveiled are, are actually a, a little bit, they go beyond where, where USDA goes in terms of interstate movement of cattle. Eventually, uh, we would like to see uh, feeder cattle and some of these other cattle in the breeding herd that are uh, electronically identifiable uh, for animal disease traceability purposes. So um, we, we definitely think that industry needs to be in the driver's seat. We have some questions uh, and some concerns with this USDA rule, but overall we're supportive of USDA's goal, which is to uh, create a nationally significant animal disease traceability program. Yeah, and I think that's a good takeaway there. What would NCBA's solution be then to traceability? I'm taking, it sounds like it's not the ear tags. 
Well, no, I think I think ear tags definitely have 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 a place, um, and I definitely think that that's probably one of the most uh, one of the biggest things that we talked about from the NCBA perspective on what we need to see out of a traceability program is that it needs to move at the speed of commerce. And those electronic tags, uh, one of the goals that we announced is we want to establish EID as the industry standard, and we want that to be done by 2024. And so we definitely see a place for those tags because electronic identification is the speed of commerce these days, right? If there were to be a foreign animal disease outbreak, we would need to be able to identify and trace uh, innumerable individual animals. And the best way to do that is through that electronic connection system uh, throughout the supply chain. And so you know, we definitely are 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 supportive of utilizing electronic identification. I think the questions that we have are twofold. One is who's going to warehouse the data and how is that compatible across systems, right? You know, at right now, you know, you can have a veterinarian apply some of those tags when they're inspected before they cross state lines. There's there's other opportunities for tagging at say the sale barn. Um, and so our big question right now is who maintains that database and is that data secure? You know, want to make sure that that data is respectful of producers' individual privacy rights, which is a big concern of ours as well. Uh, this is definitely something that we're supportive of, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we want to just give USDA a blank check to go out there and start keeping tabs on all these animals. We want to make sure it's done in an appropriate way uh, with the role of government in an, in an appropriate context. Yeah, that that definitely is a good question. I had not thought of was who owns the data, but I think the other big question in my mind is who is going to pay for the tags and how is it actually going to be implemented? Do we have any clarity yet around those two pieces? So the the traceability rule itself uh, is is open for public comment right now. That public comment period will close on March 20th, and it takes the agencies usually a couple months to process through the comments and publish a final rule. And once they publish that final rule, uh, there will be a six month delay period before the rule takes effect and enters all cattle 18 months of age or older with some other exceptions and, and uh, uh, classifications notwithstanding are required to be electronically ID'd before moving interstate. Uh, so there is some time to ramp up. And the question about who's gonna pay for tags is, is an important one. And it's one that we've asked ourselves a lot as well. And, you know, I think that we really want to see some sort of a cost sharing mechanism with USDA. That's definitely something that we're going to be asking Congress for throughout the fiscal year 2024 appropriation cycle. Uh, we definitely think that there is uh, a lot of uh, justification for having congressional appropriated dollars go towards cost sharing for some of these tags. And I think that that also is going to help the producers uh, come become more familiar and more comfortable with this program. And it's also not going to represent that big of a hit to their bottom line. You know, we definitely see the the value of traceability uh, from an insurance perspective, uh, but we also know that there is an in, in, incurred cost associated with that. And we want to help offset that as best we can. Tanner, before I let you go, you mentioned the public commenting period that is underway currently. If any of our producer listeners want to make comments, how can they go about doing so? You bet. So if you go to regulations.gov and, and type in APHIS, A-P-H-I-S, uh, you will see a rule that's called electronic identification of cattle and bison. You can submit your comments there. And NCBA, of course, will be submitting comments. I mentioned that we have some concerns with the rule. One of the, one of the concerns that we have is 
the rule does change the definition of dairy cattle. Historically, that definition has been somewhat breed specific. Think of your traditional milking breeds like Holsteins, Jerseys, Swiss, et cetera. Uh, the, the new proposed definition would include all cattle that are born on dairy farms, regardless of sex, regardless of breed, and regardless of classification. And the reason behind that, of course, is the traceability program is designed for animal disease traceability purposes. And there is a higher disease susceptibility just based upon production practices that occur on the dairy farm. For example, you know, a lot of dairies will pool colostrum for newborn calves. There's a lot more co-mingling of those dairy-born calves, either at the calf ranch or on the dairy where they're born. Um, and that increases the disease susceptibility. And so while we understand why USDA made that decision, I think there are a lot of concerns with, uh, especially you've seen a, a, a dramatic rise in the amount of beef genetics that are used on dairy farms uh, for some of those animals that need to keep lactating, of course, but you also have uh, maybe don't necessarily want to keep uh, retainer heifers back to build into the herd. And so you're utilizing some of those beef genetics to turn what is historically been a cost center into a revenue builder. We need to be making sure that we're we're considering all those potential options, right? There are some situations, for example, where on dairy farms, the, the calf is removed from the dam immediately after birth. And it, it's one of those situations where we could potentially make an exception because the dairy industry is subject to more stringent uh, tagging protocols than beef cattle are. So that's some of the things that we'll be mentioning in our comments as we uh, continue to engage with the agency on this rulemaking. Fantastic, Tanner. Well, thanks again for your time today. Certainly appreciate it. Well, Tanner, certainly a lot to consider there when it comes to the electronic ear tags that we are going to see put in place here for the beef industry. Yeah, it is. That's, uh, I'm glad that we got that interview in place because things are going to be here and regulated before we know it. And it's always good to have an idea as they're coming down the pipe. It certainly is. But I tell you what, Tanner, we have another great conversation coming down the pipeline tomorrow. I would encourage our listeners to stay tuned for. But in the meantime, should we let the people go? Well, let's let them go. Let's go.